so today we are back in Mark, and we've been out of it for about six weeks, and I am thrilled to, to be back into this. Six weeks ago, when we last looked at Mark, Brother Chuck uh, took us through Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and that was all about the triumphal entry. That was Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. They had been marching south for quite a while to um, get to Jerusalem. They had come from the northern area of Galilee, and they were on a slow trek over the course of probably a few weeks into Jerusalem. And what I remember seeing in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is that Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die. So, but what Brother Chuck covered in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 11 was Jesus' entry into the city. Today, our passage is going to be verses 12 through 19. If you're using the blue Bible that we have on the center of the table, it's on page 939. Next week's passage will be chapter 11, verses 20 through 25. So please uh, look at that in your, put, write that down in your worship guide and meditate on that in the week ahead and be ready to have something to share next week and to have some questions uh, also, because um, there are questions. I mean, there's a big question in our passage today. It's a question that I've asked for many, many years before I even begun to have an answer. So, um, so Jesus has come into town. We saw that six weeks ago in verses 1 through 11. And uh, the verses that we're covering today take place on Monday. Okay, so he's, he's going to die on Friday. Verses 1 through 11 is Sunday. Today's passage is Monday. And he's got a few busy days ahead of him between now and Friday. He's got a few very busy days ahead of him. But I want to kind of give you a visual bird's eye view of where things are happening at. So up on the screen, we're going to put a map of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. You can see Jerusalem there kind of to the center left. And really, Jerusalem in Bible times is just this area here. And up just a little bit more and around there. That's Jerusalem. It's actually a pretty small place. It's densely populated, but it's pretty small. Um, if you've ever heard of the Mount of Olives, that's right here. The Garden of Gethsemane is here. Well, Jesus, during this last week, isn't staying in Jerusalem. But he's going there every single day. He's actually staying in Bethany. And we have reason to believe that he was probably staying with Mary, uh, Martha, and Lazarus. You learn more about them in John's Gospel. But they were great friends. And this little trek from the tiny little village of Bethany to the small city of Jerusalem is almost a mile, say three-quarters of a mile, uh, most likely. And it, there's quite a few hills, things like that. It's, it's a good little commute uh, if you're going into town to work. But Jesus, most of the week, is staying, all week, really, is staying in Bethany. And almost, I, I, I think, there might be one day of the week where he doesn't go to Jerusalem. Not sure yet about that, but most days he makes the trek to Jerusalem. Well, today's passage, it starts here. He goes into the temple. Tina, zoom in on the temple, if you would. So we get to the temple, and the temple is a very important place. The temple, they built the temple because God told them to. And the temple was to be a house of worship, it was to be a house of prayer, it was to be the place where God dwelled, and God had a special affection for the Jewish people. He chose them for a very special purpose. So they were the ones in charge of the temple. They, the, the priests and the uh, Levites would offer sacrifices, and they would do uh, much of the work of worship, but all of God's people were welcome. But there was also this area that became known as the court of the Gentiles. And it was a place where people who were not Jewish could come 
and they could, could bring an offering, they could be a sacri- uh, give a sacrifice that was kind of their place to go if they wanted to be closer to God as an outsider. But this red line right here, that's the temple wall. Well, the court of the Gentiles is this area here and then up here. This is the holy place. That's the holy of holies. That's where more of the priests do, do their work, and that's where the sacrifices are made. But the story that we're going to read today actually takes place in this court of the Gentiles, somewhere here or up in here. And you can see in the center is where the Jews do most of their work. But, but anybody could go into the temple. And this court of the Gentiles, it's where today's passage uh, takes place. So I wanted to give you a visual of that. The, the court of the Gentiles, it covers about 35 acres. So it's a pretty big area. I mean, we can have hundreds of people in that area, even thousands of people in that area. But that's where today's story takes place. I want to read the story, and then we are going to move right on into our discussion. So Mark chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 12 to 19. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Father, as we meditate upon your word and as we discuss it, would you speak truth to us? I pray, O God, that we may think, as you've commanded us to do, about what is written I pray, God, that you would turn the light bulb on because that is your part. We know that from your word, God. And I pray for lively, fruitful, delightful discussion where we all get to know you more. Give each person something to share. God, give us good questions. God, I pray as we look at it ourselves, God, that we would just be amazed by you. Send your Holy Spirit and teach us your truth. Now we pray. Amen. All right, take a few minutes, look over it yourself. Your table leader will start the discussion when the time is right. Okay, everybody. So I, my ear tends to wander sometimes at other tables, and I think we, some of our discussion was definitely similar. Anybody ever read this passage when you first became a Christian and been like, why is Jesus having a temper tantrum? You know, it, it, it almost, at first glance, and at first glance is the key word here, but it also reminds me of a certain three-year-old I know when he doesn't get a snack. <laughs> so, in this passage, we see in verses 12 through 14, it's, it's kind of like a Monday morning commute to work. He's got business to do in the temple. He's going to be about his father's business all week, just like he has been all of his life. So, Monday is the trip into the office or uh, verses 12 through 14 is the trip in the office. In verses 15 and 16, really verses 15 to the remainder to the end, what we see is that there's a major ruckus in the temple. 
And in verses 15 and 16, we are learning what ought not to go on in the temple. In verse 17, we see what should be going on in the temple. Verse 18, we see the response of the religious leaders and we see the response of the crowds that are there. And there's most likely a ton of people there. It's Passover week. There were probably over 100,000 people passing in and out of this place this week because that's just what happened during Passover. And then verse 19, that's the boring verse. They just go back home. And I got a feeling that they're probably very, very happy to get back home. So, so verse 12, they leave Bethany. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. And it has leaves. And he sees it from a distance. He's hungry. He needs breakfast, just like most of us do every morning, right? Well, he goes, and he examines the tree. He's looking for something to eat, and nothing is there because it's not the season for figs. So he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark makes a special note here to tell us that the disciples heard it. That's important, and we'll get to that next week. The disciples heard what Jesus said. Now, it seems like here he has a temper tantrum because he didn't get his belly full when he wanted something to eat because it wasn't the season for figs. I'm not going to get mad at a strawberry plant, you know, in December when it's not supposed to be bearing strawberries. Exactly. I mean, isn't that reasonable? At first glance, that's what this looks like. So when you go, you know, two weeks ago I told you all that the meaning of Scripture is plain the majority of the time. This is one of those times where it's not plain. <laughs> so when you get into the research, you figure out what was going on in that time. The fig industry was a real industry. I mean, it was commerce. I mean, people sold figs, people raised figs, people enjoyed figs. It was one of the major staples of the diet of that land at that time and still is today. But this passage takes place probably the first or second week of April. And we know that because of when Passover usually is. And the fig tree usually doesn't produce any edible figs until late May or June, approximately. Somewhere in there is where you can expect to find a fig on a fig leaf. Well, in the process of growing figs, the fig tree begins its bud on the branch. You can see just the first little bit of something forming that will eventually be a fig. Well, the first half, first one or two weeks of April, if you went to a fig tree, well, first of all, in March, all the leaves would show up. So then it would look like a very nice tree. Within the first or second week of April, it would get a little bud. There's a name for it. I can't pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try. But it would get a little bud. And this little bud was part of what the tree had to create in order for it to make a fig. And these buds were edible. These buds were yummy. They kind of tasted like a nut from uh, what I read this week. And they were kind of shaped like an almond, and they were the size of an almond. So in one sense, it almost seemed like a little little peanut, something to snack on. Well, there was no industry around these things. These things would grow on the tree, and then within a very short period of time, they would fall off, and then after they fell off, the fig would begin to form. So Mark doesn't tell us anything about that. But everything I read this week is said over and over and over again that this is how the fig tree grows. This is how it works. So did Jesus have an unreasonable expectation of this fig tree? Did he have a three-year-old temper tantrum? No, he did not. There was no industry around these little nuts. I'm just going to call them a nut. There was no industry around these. And the custom was anyone traveling, and there were a lot of people traveling to Jerusalem during the Passover, 
anyone traveling or anyone in poverty, it was just free game for anybody to go and get it when they were ready to eat. Well, Jesus, he was ready to eat. He went there. He had good reason to expect something. We don't think he was expecting figs because he knew how that worked. But he was expecting to have breakfast, and he did not have breakfast. So that's one reason why we know this is not a temper tantrum. But he has this curse. In verse 21, uh, Peter says, the, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So Jesus curses the fig tree. In verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. See, he saw something that promised. He saw a fig tree and it promised him something to eat. Based on the appearance of that tree, there should be something visible, there should be something real, there should be something substantial there for him. He should be able to find something. He should see it. He should be able to, to taste it. So it looked like a fig tree. He was expecting something to eat, but it wasn't there. It promised something, but it did not fulfill the promise. It did not produce the fruit that it was supposed to be producing. So this is his Monday morning commute to work. We get to verse 15. He comes to Jerusalem. And he enters the temple. What is the temple? God gave instructions for the temple in his law, way back in Moses' day. And God was pretty precise how he wanted things, how he wanted things built. And, and, and you know, there were periods of Jewish history between Moses and, between, and Jesus where they had temples, and there was other times where they didn't have temples. And there were temples that were torn down, and then they had went generations without one until... They were able to rebuild one. And, you know, there's a lot of history there. But the main thing that we need to know about the temple for the sake of this passage is that the temple is where God's people met with God. The temple is where they went to go to experience God. The temple was a place of prayer, as we're going to see in verse 17. The temple was a place where sacrifices could be offered. And the way things worked for the Jewish people before Jesus with sacrifices is much different than the way things work with us today. Jesus was a once-for-all sacrifice. He's the only sacrifice that needs to be make and made, and all of our sins are covered completely. Well, prior to the death and the sacrifice of Jesus, they had to constantly bring animals regularly, over and over and over again. And there were some that were very specific times that they had to do it. Other times they just did it whenever they felt like they needed to. But they would bring these animals to the temple. And, and the animals would be sacrificed there. So they would bring something to God. So the temple is the meeting place of God. It is where God dwells. So he enters the temple. I mean, it's kind of like he's going to church and he ends up in Walmart. I stole that from Chuck. Didn't you say that? So, you know, he, he, he shows up at the auction. And, and it is not what he's expecting. Kind of reminds me of the fig tree. He's expecting to find something there and it's not there. He goes to the temple. What does God require at the temple? He requires worship. And he goes in there and it's not there. Something else is going on. Something completely different. And he gets angry. Angry. He's righteously angry. I do believe it's possible for us to be righteously angry. We know that Jesus did not sin. We know that he did not sin here when he overturned these tables. I'm not going to do an object lesson of that here today. He's angry. He's mad. Things 
are not right. He has been attacked by so many people who should be leading people to God. The religious leaders have been coming down on him for a couple years now. And now he goes to the place, and I have a feeling he knew what he was going to get into when he got in there. But he got in there and he saw it. Where God was supposed to be worshipped, people were buying and selling and making money. People turned something good and used it for their own evil purposes. Happens in churches today all the time. We do things in the name of God. We do things and we put a religious dress on it. And we aren't doing it for God. We're actually doing it for ourselves. And this is a serious thing. He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So not only was he driving out the people who were buying, but he was also driving out the people who were selling. Well, why was all this going on? The truth is, there was a temple tax that was required by the law. And you couldn't come in. I mean, there were foreigners coming into the city. Well, you couldn't come in and pay that temple tax with a coin that had Caesar's name on it. Caesar was the Roman emperor. Many people in the, of the Romans worshipped Caesar and his face was on all the coins. So you couldn't offer that in the temple tax. You had to go and exchange it. You know, if you, if you went to Mexico, you would exchange some dollars for some pesos. If you went to Europe, you, you, you know, you'd do it with the euro. And that, that, and that was normal and that was appropriate. But it was corrupted here because the people in charge were collecting money for themselves. And sometimes people could not, didn't have animals. They couldn't bring a sacrifice in. So they would go and they would purchase the sacrifice. It would cost them something because they would have to pay for it. And then they would give them an animal, and then they would go and take the animal to be sacrificed. We see that at the end of verse 15, the seats of those who sold pigeons. We get to verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. There's all kinds of commerce going on, and the truth is the commerce needs to go on at the bazaar down the road and not in the house of God. The house of God was a place for God to be worshipped, not for man to profit anything. So we know, we see in these verses what is not supposed to take place in the temple of God. We are not to set things up to benefit and to profit ourselves. But the temple is to be a place where people come and they meet with God. We get into verse 17. And in verse 17, he tells them the true purpose of the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? I love it when he says, Is it not written? He's quoting something from one of the prophets or the law from the Old Testament. And this phrase he's about to share right here when he says, is it not written, actually comes from the prophet Isaiah about eight or 900 years before. But Isaiah wrote, and the religious leaders knew this. They knew, they knew what the prophets had said, but they, they didn't care. They neglected it. But Isaiah wrote, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have, and then Jesus added this, you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus looks at them and see, the leaders had been running the house, but Jesus is the one who owns the house. And because he owns the house, he can arrange the furniture however he would like to. I lost my page. But he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? What is prayer? It's worship. Prayer is that it's more than just saying grace before a meal. But when I look at the grand scope of what the scriptures teach us about prayer, it has to do with our communion with God. 
with our fellowship with God, with our relationship with God. People would go to Jerusalem to go to the temple because they wanted to have some type of experience with God the Almighty. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a mini-mart. You're making all kinds of money. You've turned it into the stock exchange. And it is not that. This is not for you. This is for God. And this is so that people can see God. This is for prayer. And what is prayer? None other than the ongoing conversation with God that He wants to have in every single one of our souls. Is He not a God who speaks? Does He not speak? He speaks to us in His Word. He speaks to us inside. He wants to speak to us every single day. And as we pray, we pour our hearts and out back out to God and we speak to Him and He speaks to us. And all of life is this beautiful and this absolutely wonderful divine conversation where we are in continual and constant worship of the God who loves us and of the God who saves us. So He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for middle class white people. For Americans, for Latinos. See, he doesn't play favorites. Who does he say? He says for all the nations. He says for all the peoples. He says for every tongue, tribe, and nation, every language, every dialect, everybody. See, he's breaking out of his shell. God had chosen to work through the Jewish people, but even in the Old Testament, all the nations were gathered in, but it wasn't super obvious. It wasn't the main point of the Old Testament, but we do see it in there. Well, Jesus is on the scene, and now access is being given to anyone. Anyone can come to God. It's open to everybody. It doesn't matter what you look like. We can have the craziest looking person come in and and eat with us and be here on a Sunday morning, and you know what? This is for them. They can join us in prayer. God can save them just as he has saved us. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't care how you dress. He doesn't care how many piercings you have. He doesn't care how long your hair is or what the color of your skin is or what part of town you come from. It is for all. When his temple is open to everyone, he is willing to meet with you. It doesn't matter where you come from. Yeah, you might not dress as nice as so-and-so. Well, you know what? God don't care how you dress. God just says, come to me as you are. And he welcomes you. At the end of verse 17, Jesus says, you have made it a den of robbers, and we've already seen that. What's the command say? Thou shalt not steal. But yet, in the very house of God, that's what they're doing. We get to verse 18, and look what happens. We see people's response. We have a mixed response of of chief priests. Well, we have a mixed group of chief priests and scribes. Those are the religious leaders, very closely associated with the Sanhedrin Some of you may have heard of them and also the Pharisees. Well, they heard and they saw what happened. And what is their response? They are seeking a way to destroy Jesus for they feared him. Now, there is a fear of God that is good. There is a fear of God that that says, I'm not going to cross God because he's holy and awesome and mighty and he will squash me like a bug. That's a good, holy fear to have. But there's this other fear where you get scared. And it's a fear that is selfishly motivated. Maybe, like in the case of these religious leaders, they're going to lose their power, they're going to lose their authority, they're not going to be able to control the masses anymore. They see people just beginning to love Jesus, and, and if these people are listening to Jesus, then they aren't going to be able to keep the commerce up in the temple, 
their bank account is going to go down, it's going to hit their bottom line, it's going to hit their profit and loss statement, and they're not going to be able to make as much money. They're seeing everything that they've worked so hard to establish about to be taken away from them. They don't want it to happen. See, when we feel like we're about to lose something that we've worked very hard to get, it causes us to do dumb stuff that we shouldn't do. Why do you do some of the dumb stuff you do that you do every once in a while? You do that dumb stuff the same reason I do some of the dumb stuff I do. You're worried about losing something that's important to you. It's time to let go of that and just say whatever it is that God wants is fine with me, even if it causes me to lose something. But the chief priests, the scribes, they heard what Jesus said, they saw what he did, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. That's not the first time that we've seen that in the book of Mark. We've seen it before. They feared him. Look at the end of verse 18. Why did they fear him? They feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. All the crowd was astonished at his teaching. This is the fifth time in Mark's gospel that we've seen the word astonished. And any time that we've seen it before, it has to do with the crowds. When Jesus was in a public setting and when he was teaching or when he did miracles, people would see it and they would be astonished. Wow. How many of y'all know what it's like to feel astonished? Have you ever been astonished by Jesus? Okay. You know what? When people see Jesus, I was talking with someone about this just a little bit ago. When people see Jesus and they hear his voice and they see his work, he's amazing and they're astonished. And I I think that probably all of us in this room have seen Jesus at some point and he's astonished you. But we go through these seasons that has no joy, where we're empty, where we're this, where we're that, where we're down in the dumps, where we're focused on ourselves, where we think the whole world is against us. You know what the cure for all of that is? It's Jesus. And when you see Jesus work, when you see him move, that astonishment takes over and your heart falls in love with him. And these people are experiencing that. They're seeing the beauty of God. They're seeing the might of God. They're seeing the power of God. They're seeing that there is no one like Jesus and their hearts are going for him instead of all the the pain in the bottom rules of these religious leaders and all of their gimmicks and all of their games. They're astonished by Jesus. They see his might. They see his power. They see how wonderful he is. And, and, and the religious leaders are about to lose control. Now, what does the fig tree have to do with all of this? Well, in a sense, the Jewish people, the religious leaders, and the temple is the fig tree. It looks good. There's a lot of religious activity. People are dressed up very nicely. Okay? It looks like worship should be going on, but there's not really anything going on. He curses that fig tree so that it withers away, as we're going to see in verse 21 next week. And that withering away of the fig tree is just the same as those tables being overturned and all the commerce having to come to an end. It has to stop. And we get into verse 19, and he says, When evening came, they went out of the city. Now, here's what I want us to see the most important thing about today is we got this idea of temple. And I've already told you that the temple was a place in Jerusalem. We saw a map of it. People would go there to meet with God. But there's more teaching in the Bible to temple than just that. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And John tells us, that the temple he was speaking of was not the big giant building that took him decades to build, but it was the temple of his own body. See, Jesus knew they were going to execute him. And three days later, 
he was going to come back up. Why did he call himself the temple? Because he was the very dwelling place of God. He was God in flesh. He was God incarnate. He was God himself. And at the same time, the Son of God. Jesus is the greatest revelation of God that anyone in the world has ever seen. Worship constantly took place in Jesus' life to God. He was the perfect worshiper. And because he could be the perfect worshiper, he could take the place of imperfect worshipers like us. But there was constant worship of the Father in Jesus. And Jesus was the presence of God, so he very much qualified as the greater temple, as the true temple, as the real temple. But let's take this idea of temple just a bit further and look at what the Apostle Paul says. And and there's four or five places where it says this. Most of it is in his two letters to the Corinthians. But what he says is that you and I are temples. So that big, giant building where all this crazy stuff just happened is a temple, but yet we're temples. Why is that? Let me tell you why that is. Because if you have believed on Jesus for salvation, then God lives inside of you. You are a temple. Just as Jesus constantly worshipped the Father perfectly, you can worship the Father. The same activity that took place in the Jewish temple before Jesus was alive can now happen 24-7 wherever you are. The same way that God took up residence in that temple, he takes up residence in you. That's glorious. That's beautiful. That's like something I don't understand at all. But here's what's even more beautiful about this. You know, 2,100 years ago, if somebody wanted to see God, they had to travel far to a building. God said, come to me. Now that's good. That's good news, isn't it? But now you know what? God goes to others. God is not restricted by geography. God is not restricted by this city or that city. But God can go anywhere, and he does go anywhere that you go if he's inside of you. And people no longer have to come to God. God goes to them. And when we go to God, we can deliver the message of salvation. We can call people to discipleship. We can call people to bow down and to surrender everything to him, and when we do that, we bear fruit. We're like a fig tree with nice shiny leaves, and we'll give them something to eat. And let me tell you what, that's God's heart. That is God's heart for us, that we will do what the Jewish people were missing, and we actually can do that because God lives inside of us, that we live our life in such a way where people see us, and there's fruit. We have something to offer. It's the spiritual fruit that only comes as we walk with God. God is calling you to bear fruit, He's calling you to make a difference in this community. He is calling you to be a house of prayer. There's ongoing and constant conversation with God wherever you are. Constant fellowship that's never broken. That is God's plan for you. You don't have to go to Him. He is inside of you. No matter where you are, the darkest dungeon on the face of the earth, God goes there. He goes on vacation with you too. He goes everywhere. And this is good news. This is good news for us. We are the temple of God. And we are to be a place where He is worshipped. So what do I want you to do? Number three, what do you do in response to this text? You worship God. That is His call on you today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. Thank You for being mighty, awesome, and beautiful. There is nobody like you. We thank you for that. 
and give you praise today. And I pray that we, each of us, individually and when we're all together, that we may be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've commanded us to pray. Teach us how to do it, Lord. God, we thank you for what's about to take place. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is not very far away, God. We thank you for offering your body. We thank you for pouring out your blood for us. We thank you, great God, for your death on the cross. And because of that, we rejoice in salvation. Thank you, my Lord.